Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Grant Haver, and I want to introduce you to the newest podcast on the DSR Network, Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with new and emerging foreign policy experts about the issues of today and tomorrow. We've covered everything from the war in Ukraine to the impact of pop culture on policy. So if you want to better understand the people and ideas that will be shaping the debate in Washington and around the world for years to come, check us out wherever you find your podcasts. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all of the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your favorite podcast app. And we're not stopping there, as we'll soon be announcing additional programming and content partnerships to make membership an absolute must-have. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MAY2022 at checkout to gain access to all of our exclusive benefits for just $5 per month. Thank you for your support. Nine. 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from New York City. We have another of our special series of podcasts in which we talk to the authors of books we think you ought to read. The book we're talking about this time is called Freezing Order, A True Story of Money Laundering, Murder, and Surviving Vladimir Putin's Wrath. It is the follow-up to another book called Red Notice, which is a New York Times bestseller written by Bill Browder, who is the CEO of Hermitage Capital Management and the head of the Global Magnitsky Justice Campaign, which focuses on imposing targeted visa bans and asset freezes on human rights abusers and highly corrupt officials. Welcome to the podcast, Bill. Great to be here, David. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. You know, your two books, I think, resonate on several levels. First of all, of course, They're great books, extremely well-written, compelling books that, as so many uh, reviewers have said, read like thrillers. In some ways, I'm sorry for that because it suggests your life has been lived a bit like a thriller. But uh, beyond that, of course, the books provide a very deep insight into the inner workings of Vladimir Putin's Russia because you arrived there and began to do business in Russia, actually a little bit before, I guess, Vladimir Putin came to power, but you were there to witness the formation, not just of of Putin as a leader and of his government, but also of the kind of mafia, oligarchic elite around Putin. 
and how that worked together, how that corruption became an endemic and central element of how the Russian government operated. And for a number of years, particularly after the death of your attorney and how this led to the formation of the Global Magnitsky Act, which we talk about on the podcast a lot, our our listeners are quite sophisticated in these things. You were not a lone voice among wilderness, but you were a unique voice in the wilderness. And now what you have written about has become a central topic of, of conversation because sanctions and targeting oligarchs and Putin's corruption and Putin's brutality are center stage for everybody because of Ukraine. And I guess my first reaction is living the arc of that story and getting to this point in it. I'm wondering how you react to that and whether, in fact, you think we're getting to a point where where you think the Putin story may be coming to an end. Sadly, I don't think the Putin story is coming to an end. It's kind of like the engineer, the the airplane engineer who knew that there was a design fault in a plane and kept on screaming to management that that this plane is, there's a design fault, it's not good, the plane is going to crash one day. And, and everybody ignoring the engineer because it's just too expensive to like, you know, go back and recall the airplanes and fix the design, design flaw. And then all of a sudden the plane crashes and 350 people die. And all of a sudden the airline and everybody and the regulatory bodies all want to redesign the airplane. And that's kind of what I feel like with this whole story with Putin, that Putin is, has been a, a completely evil, criminal, mass murderer for, for a very long time. And, and everybody wanted to sort of gloss over it because they thought that it was better for business, better for diplomacy, better for whatever to, to just not do anything about it. And as a result, we, we, I mean, he's 95% responsible for everything he's doing, but we're 5% responsible for kind of looking the other way for so long and not, and not uh, holding his feet to the fire, not holding him accountable. And we have now with this war in Ukraine, Everybody has kind of woken up to it just the way that like after a plane crashes, everybody wants to fix the design of the airplane. But I, I think that, that Putin has now put himself into a position where he has no choice but to carry on doing what he's doing. Because if he were in, in any way to back down, to compromise, to, to do any of that kind of stuff, it would show weakness to the Russian people. And by showing weakness to the Russian people, I think he potentially loses his... his his position. And, and the reason why he's, I, I think he's in this war is just to, to stay in power. And so I think Putin's only objective now is to stay in power. And, um, and we've seen a lot of other examples like this. You know, the, um, Mugabe of Zimbabwe just got worse and worse and worse, and, and Kim Jong-un and his father. And, and so I, I think, you know, every, everybody wants to think that Putin has, has bitten off more than he can chew and that, that this is all going to lead to the end of the Putin regime. And there's lots of reasons to think that that might happen because of the economy, because of the military failures. But I tell you, this guy will hold on for dear life. And I think it's more likely than not that, that we end up in a Kim Jong-un scenario that, than in some type of scenario where he, you know, a Ceausescu, Gaddafi scenario where, where he crashes and burns. And so I think that, that probably 80% chance or 70% chance that, that Putin is around five years from now doing the same thing. And we're just still struggling with it. Well, one of the things that you talk about, in, and I, I believe I read an interview with you that talked about this, was that Putin, you know, is a criminal, but he also has this desire to be accepted at the 
big table of, of global affairs. Uh, and that has moderated his behavior somewhat. But it seems to me like we're, you know, one of the things that's different here is that there's a lot of discussion about maintaining sanctions and continuing his isolation after this period. And it'll be very difficult for him to recover whatever standing he did have prior to this period. Does that make him more dangerous? Does the, the Putin you describe hanging on, who is isolated and essentially doesn't have any reason to uphold international standards, is he a more dangerous person? There's no question. So the, all of that international, the, the Davos, the G20, the World Cup, the Olympics, all that stuff made him have to think about, you know, every decision is a cost-benefit decision, and he had to think about the cost. But the moment that he's abandoned that, and he has abandoned that, I mean, he's been kicked out of every international organization. He's sanctioned by all Western governments. You know, there's no more competing in, in any sports. He, he doesn't have anything to lose at this point, which is not no reason not, not to keep him isolated. But, but now that he's made that decision, which is that he's got no reason, he's got nothing to lose, he, he's going to carry on and carry on and, and carry on with this type of stuff and, and escalate. But having said that, he, he is a very rational person. Anybody who thinks he's irrational, I, I think, is just thinking with their emotions about this. He's, he's a rational person. In the sense that everything he's doing is is for a purpose. It's just not the purpose. It's just you know we would never do what he's doing, but he's doing it because he wants to stay in power. So he is limited. He is limited by the weakness of his military. He 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 can't. You know we we're, we all say, okay, we don't want to do this because we don't want to go to war with Vladimir Putin. Well, Vladimir Putin can't win a war with the Ukrainians. How is he going to win a war with NATO? He understands that. You know we all say we don't want to do this because he's threatening nuclear war. Well, if he starts a nuclear war, he'll die in a nuclear war along with everybody else. That's what mutually assured destruction is. He's a thug. He's a crook. But he's also a person who understands what his capabilities are. And so he, he's been going around the world, thumping his chest, threatening everybody with every possible terrible thing he could do. And then he's, and he did a terrible thing, going invading a foreign country. And we discovered that he's completely hopeless. His military can barely you know, do one-tenth of what we, we thought they would do. and and. That is his own. I mean, he, he's not unaware of his own of his own limitations, and and I think we have to, to understand that we we're not the weak ones in this conversation with him. We're the powerful ones. Totally agree with that. One element of this, of course, that I, I suspect you've watched very closely because it's related and actually been influenced, I think, by your Magnitsky campaign, has been trying to launch sanctions at Russia with teeth, sanctions that target oligarchs around Putin, that target Putin, that target his family, sanctions which have been supported pretty broadly in the West, not broadly internationally, but also have some significant holes in them. And I'm wondering, having been a leader, pioneer, and a veteran of this debate about how do you create sanctions with teeth, how you think the sanctions regime is doing? First of all, this, the, the sanctions that are be currently being imposed are the most vicious, most wide-reaching, and most punishing sanctions that any country has ever experienced, what Russia is experiencing right now. And they're also much more than I would have ever expected from the US government, from the EU, from the UK, from Canada, from Australia. 
And I normally criticize governments for inaction, for, for bad action, for, for weak policies. But this one I can't criticize anybody for because this is pretty much in line with what I, if I had been sitting at the table, I would have asked them to do. But that doesn't mean that we are going to succeed based on the current sanctions. So there, there's, there's always a question that people ask, are sanctions for deterrence or for they, are they for punishment? And we could have used sanctions to deter Putin if we had actually gotten our act together before he invaded. If we had just sanctioned 5% of the oligarchs that we're currently sanctioning before the invasion, just to give him a, a small taste of our, of our ability to actually do this, he might have had a different calculation. He might not have invaded the whole country. He might have just done a referendum. There's many things he might have done because he might have understood that, that, that we actually could do this, which he didn't think before because we had never done it before. Now that he has invaded, he's not going to back down. So we're not going to deter him anymore. There's no, there's no, the sanctions are not for deterrence at this point. The purpose of sanctions at this point are to dry up his economic resources so he doesn't have the money to carry on doing what he's doing. And in that regard, we still have a long way to go. And to put it in sort of business terms, we've gone after his assets, but we haven't gone after his income. And let me just explain. The sanctions that have been imposed so far have sanctioned the central bank reserves of Russia. We've sanctioned $350 billion of money he held at the central bank, which was what what one could describe as his war chest, his literal war chest, that, that the money he could have used to fight this war. That's about 60% of the central bank reserves. We couldn't get, get, it, get to his gold or his, his Chinese RMB, but we got his, his dollars, his euros, his sterling, his Canadian dollars, et cetera. That's his onshore money, as I describe it. He has offshore money. And when I say offshore money, the money that's held, the huge amount of money that's held by the Russian oligarchs offshore I believe 50% of it is his. When you see an oligarch worth 20 billion, 10 of it's Putin's, 10 of it's the oligarchs. And we've gone after 35 oligarchs. And I say we, I mean either US, UK, EU, Canada, Australia, and, and, and oftentimes not all of them. 35 oligarchs have been sanctioned. There are 118 oligarchs on the Russian rich list, on the Forbes rich list, which means that there's still more oligarchs to go. And on top of that, the oligarchs are quite clever people. They, they, it's not like this has been unexpected. They, they've always thought that someone might come for their money. And so they've put together the best asset protection schemes money can buy. And so there are trustees, associates, custodians, proxies that sit in front of these oligarchs. There's shell companies and offshore companies and, and, and intermediary companies and all sorts of stuff like that. And so it's going to take a while before we actually get to freezing all the assets of the oligarchs that we have sanctioned. So there's a bunch of loopholes that still need to be fixed. I don't think that our government is unaware of those. I think it's not easy. And I think it's going to be a long, hard slog to, to get that money. But we've, we've made good progress on that front. And so if I come back to my analogy of assets and income, we've done a pretty good job on the assets. However, on the income, we've done a terrible job every day. A billion dollars is sent to Russia by the people who buy their oil and buy their gas. It's mostly the Europeans, mostly the Germans, Italians, Austrians, et cetera. And every day, Putin spends a billion dollars on his war killing Ukrainians. And so if you look at it purely like a business, you say, well, his assets might be tied up, but his income continues unabated. And we have to do something about that. And it's not easy because the Germans fought with us tooth and nail at every step of the way for the last 
decade of becoming more dependent on Russian gas. And so they're really between a rock and a hard place. And it's no better for the Italians or the Austrians or the Finns or anyone else. And so that's a big problem that needs to be fixed. The Europeans have announced that they're going to stop buying Russian oil. Sounds good. And it is good. But that's only 20% of that billion dollars a day. The lion's share comes from the sale of gas. And that's something which is not going to be fixed overnight. And as long as Putin has access to that money, he's, he has access and ability to fight this war and to make life miserable for all of us uh, in the West. Parenthetically, one of the things that strikes me when I hear about oligarchs protecting themselves against sanctions is that it seems to me that there is a, you know, a sort of a large industry of Western businesses, law firms, accounting firms, banks that are enabling this. And they're probably doing, by the way, a boom business with other Chinese and other countries. Yes. That are, you know, and perhaps, you know, they, they ought to be targeted by us as well. What do you think of that? I, I completely agree. And, this, and, and so in order to export all this corruption, there has to be an importer and the enablers are doing the importation job. And they've made life very difficult for us, for the governments and for the regulators and for the sanctioners to, to do their job. And these enablers, and when I say enablers, I mean lawyers, bankers, accountants, trust companies, et cetera, are all really, at, at this point, scuppering our, our war efforts. And so I have a, a proposal, which I've been telling different parliaments and different governments about how to fix this which is that the enablers are the only ones who really know where all the money is. They're the only ones who have set up the structures and know how they work. And the best way, instead of having investigators try to investigate these impenetrable structures, the best way of getting this information to the hands of people who can act on it would be to make an amendment to the sanctions law in the US, in the EU, in the UK, in Canada, and in fact, I just testified about this yesterday to the Canadian Parliament, make an amendment to the law, which makes it makes a requirement for any enabler who's been involved with an oligarch setting up a structure or helping them with their money. If their client has been put on the sanctions list, then, then those people should have a duty under law, punishable by law, to become a whistleblower to the government, to share the information of what they know about the oligarch's assets and the structures, et cetera. And I think if these people were, were threatened with jail and fines for not coming clean, they'd all come clean very quickly. And it would be a lot easier for us to go after the oligarch's money. That seems like a very sensible and, and timely suggestion. You spent a lot of time in Russia. You spent a lot of time working in that economic environment, political environment. And the sanctions do have some effect. And we, we are seeing occasional stories of oligarchs speaking out. And there was even a, two days ago a, a former Russian colonel who appeared on Russian television and actually said the war is going badly. And I wonder, as somebody who is as experienced with all of this as you are, you look at this and you say, there are cracks in the facade. There is, there is cracks in this superstructure or not. Whether you just say, well, this is, this is peripheral and the center, the Putin-driven center is holding. There are no cracks. Whatever we've seen are highly um, rare, irregular, 
and don't represent anything that's going on in the mainstream. There was a, an oligarch named Oleg Tinkov who publicly criticized Putin, and within seconds of doing so, they threatened his bank with renationalization until he sold it to another sort of friendly oligarch for, for nothing. I wouldn't assume for a second that, that there's going to be a rise up of the oligarchs. I don't assume for a second that any of the people surrounding Putin are going to turn on him. He's, he's a very paranoid man. Just look at the size of the table he sits at, and it tells you everything. You know, sometimes a picture tells you a thousand words. He's so scared of everybody. He's so looking for, for betrayal and disloyalty. He finds it in places where it doesn't even exist. There's not going to be any person that's going to, going to stand up to him in his current environment. The only way that, that, that the Russians will replace Putin, in my opinion, is if he loses the war. If he loses the war in a way that's, that's incontrovertible, it's not that you can't spin it any other way that he's lost the war. The Russians won't have him anymore, and they'll take care of him in a heartbeat. Because the Russians, they don't care about civilian casualties and human rights abuse, but they care about not having a loser as their president. And I think that that's the that has to be the overriding objective of of our policy towards Russia is making sure that he loses the loses the war. And in the final minute, we've got the flip side of that is because. There are voices in the West that are saying, give him an off-ramp and let's not, let's not put him into that position, including some heads of state. If he remains in power, how likely is it that risks like we've seen towards Ukraine then morph towards the Baltics or elsewhere? In other words, you know, in my view, I'm tipping my hand, but I agree with you, and I think he needs to be defeated in order to eliminate this threat. Do you agree? Do you agree that if he's not defeated, the threat remains? There's no question. I mean, and, and I should also say that that if he wins in Ukraine, he will absolutely be on the border of Estonia, pointing his guns at Estonia or Latvia, pointing nuclear weapons at Washington, Berlin, and London, and seeing whether we really believe in Article 5 of NATO, whether we're actually going to go to war with Russia, because he's hoping that, that he'll bluff us, bluff us down. That, 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 I mean, we don't ever want to be in that position where we have to make that decision, because some um, There'll be a lot of people arguing that we should just like give them Eastern, give them Eastern Europe so we don't have a nuclear war with Russia. I hope that those of you who are out there listening to this understand that uh, why you should go out and, and, and buy this book, Freezing Order, a True Story of Money Laundering, Murder, and Surviving Vladimir Putin's Wrath. You should also get Red Notice, the book that preceded it. But I also hope you'll keep following the commentary and views of, of Bill who has shown an extraordinary amount of courage under extremely difficult circumstances for a long, long time. His efforts have actually changed the world in fairly substantial ways. He has warned that we would end up in a place like this, and here we are. He is prescient, and I think he's, he's earned his prescience in, uh, in very difficult circumstances. So uh, it's not just the books, but uh, I hope you'll continue to, to follow, listen to what Bill has got to say. And I hope you will take care of yourself, Bill, and uh, stay safe out there. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's it for this edition of the podcast. We'll be back again tomorrow with another covering these issues. And uh, we hope you'll join us then. Bye-bye.